0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts. And in the first segment of this episode, I'll be speaking with John Deary, who's the founder and president of the Center for American Entrepreneurship, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to telling people about the critical importance of entrepreneurs and startups to innovation. I first heard him speak about the subject here in Grand Rapids, where he talked about how entrepreneurship has been in steep decline for some time now. And he joins me on the podcast here to talk more about how this decline in entrepreneurship is really threatening to the economy. Then after that, I'm happy to bring you another segment from Anne-Marie Schieber, award-winning news anchor and journalist. She speaks with several people about their jobs and the ethic they bring to their workplace every day, showing how satisfaction in your workplace has less to do with passion and more to do with a change in perspective. Also, every Wednesday when we release an episode, I also post episode show notes on Acton's blog, and you can go there to find more resources, including articles, videos, links to event registration, and more. You can read them at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot org. Today, John Deary, the founder and president of the Center for American Entrepreneurship, joins me on Acton Line to discuss, as John puts it, nothing short of a national emergency. The Center for American Entrepreneurship, or CAE, is a nonpartisan research policy and advocacy organization whose mission is to engage policymakers in Washington and across the nation regarding the critical importance of entrepreneurs. According to John and studies conducted by the CAE, startups are in decline, one of the biggest, if not the most important factors that contribute to America's economy. John, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to say it was about a few weeks ago now that I had the privilege of hearing you speak on this topic for the Grand Rapids Economic Club. And I remember feeling a bit shocked by some of the numbers that you pulled up regarding Basically, the rate of startups entering the market these days. And I actually have to admit that some of that may be mistakenly come from a millennial mindset. I've always thought that a lot of people have been too hard on millennials blaming us for laziness when I saw a lot of people in my generation taking the bull by the horns when it came to innovation in the tech startup industry you know, development of the sharing economy and so on. And that's not even to mention the number of breweries, coffee shops and restaurants I see springing up here in Grand Rapids. Um, So I was surprised to hear that given that startups have been in major decline for some time now across the country. So can you summarize a few of the findings that you and your team have discovered on the regarding the rate of decline?
1: Sure. And uh, and you're not the only one who was surprised when you first heard that. I was shocked when I first heard it. I'm relatively new to the whole world of entrepreneurship and startups. My background uh, for the last uh, 25 or so years since I, I graduated from college has been in banking and financial policy. But um, um, I was the policy director of a um, financial group in Washington and uh, and came across the research, which was new at the time uh, in 2009 and 2010, um, showing uh, the following three things. Number one, um, contrary to popular belief, especially in Washington, D.C., um, uh, when it comes to net new job creation, the real action the real bullseye of that policy target is new businesses, not small. Um, I hasten to add that uh, small businesses are incredibly important, very important for lots of reasons. They employ about uh, over half of the American workforce they account for ninety nine percent of the businesses in the United States and they 're you know incredibly important aspect of our communities and towns. But if your, if your focus, your policy focus is, is job creation, the real action is new businesses. Uh, The confusion came from the fact that new businesses, of course, tend to be small, but but when the economists controlled for the age of the firm, uh, uh, what emerged from the data was that the the bullseye of that objective is really new businesses. New businesses are also, uh, in the phrase that's used in the research, is disproportionately responsible uh, for the major innovations that uh, drive economic growth in the economy. Uh, So from the standpoint of economic growth and job creation, the entrepreneurial economy is really important. Um, But the the point that you alluded to, uh, the third leg of the stool, is that startup rates in the United States have fallen to four-decade lows. Uh, and not only is that happening nationally or in aggregate, uh, the research shows it's happening in all 50 states and across a wide range of industry sectors. And this is really shocking when, you know, you know given all the attention of Silicon Valley and Shark Tank on TV and, uh, you know, as you say, all the attention given to, to the, you know, the gig economy – um, but the, uh, the research is very clear. It's been repeated. Um, uh, uh, groups like the Kauffman Foundation and people like Ed Prescott at the University of Arizona and uh, uh, Leo Hanian at Stanford and a number of other people, Bob Lighton uh, and Ian Hathaway at the Brookings Institution have documented this four-decade decline. So, um, you know, when you understand how important uh, new businesses are to... Uh, innovation, uh, economic growth, and job creation, this four-decade decline, is, as you pointed out, it, as I like to say, is nothing less than a national emergency.
0: So when you say that economic growth comes you know, principally from gains in productivity, which is driven by innovation, which I actually am pulling from your testimony that you gave in 2017 in front of the Joint Economic Committee of the House of Representatives, um, in which you expressed your concern. So you say that Basically, economic growth. So, this principally comes from gains in productivity that. It comes disproportionately from new businesses, like you just said, or startups. And you also say that American entrepreneurship is in trouble, with startup rates falling for nearly three decades, like you just said. So when you say you know it's disproportionately affected, how disproportionate are we talking about? Basically, why can't the economy just rely on the growth of current businesses as they make improvements?
1: Sure. Well, it is. It's definitely true that existing firms do innovate. You know, uh, they they uh, launch new products and services. They uh, choose to uh, uh, deliver their products or services in different way that they do innovate uh, but it tends to be at the margin um, it's not wholesale uh, innovation or the terms that are frequently used or transformational or disruptive innovation you know really turning the marketplace on its head that almost always comes from outsiders uh, from from upstarts or startups um, uh, if you think back over the last you know hundred and fifty years of um uh, of the US economy the the big innovations that really define the economic uh, uh, landscape landscape uh, over the last century and a half start you know the, the cotton gin and the uh, and the steam engine and railroads and the telegraph and telephone and uh, uh, electrification by Thomas Edison the automobile the airplane air conditioning and refrigeration all the way up through you know you know computers countless applications of the internet all the way up through and including uh, wireless communication. All of these major innovations that really popped the economy up onto a whole different uh, uh, dimension of growth and development, they all came from entrepreneurs. And the reason why that is is that existing firms, while they do innovate uh, at the margin, they're not terribly interested in or terribly well-positioned uh for transformational innovation because they're heavily invested in the establishment the establishment is their products their services their way of doing things it's almost always somebody from the outside who comes in and disrupts the establishment think of what what Steve Jobs did to uh, Hewlett Packard and IBM in the 80s. To think of what Jeff Bezos did to retail, you know, with Amazon, and continues to do to retail. Think of what um, Elon Musk right now is doing to the automotive industry. These kinds of transformational innovations, which we know from the great work of an American economist named Robert Solow, who drew this connection between economic growth gains and productivity, you know, driven by innovation. The the great um, insight. Where uh, or, or the importance of that insight is that Solow, n- w- uh, with his growth theorem, not only identified the nature of economic growth, where it comes from in terms of gains in productivity and innovation, but, but who's responsible for that? Because economists have understood for a long time that most of those really big innovations tend to come from entrepreneurs.
0: This next part of the story that I want to talk about is probably my favorite, because after you and your team found this out, um, you decided to try and find the root of the problem and answer the question that is obviously on everyone's mind right now, which is why is this happening? And we probably, you know, all have our guesses whether it's overregulation, but... Basically, there's a lot more I would say to this, you know, under the surface of all of that, because you and your colleagues decided to put the question directly to America's entrepreneurs, and you conducted roundtables with entrepreneurs in 12 cities across the U.S. to ask them that very question. Can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. I was, uh, as I said, I was at a different uh, organization, a financial organization. I was trying in the I was the policy director there and in the wake of the Great Recession um, you might recall if I can take take you back to around 2011 or 2012 the economy had been growing for a few years we came out of the Great Recession in 2009 but we were growing at a very slow pace about around 2% uh, the historical average post-World War II average is about three and a half percent so we were growing very slowly about 2% notwithstanding the big Obama fiscal stimulus that was done in 2009, and notwithstanding the Federal Reserve, you know, coming in in, in unprecedented and controversial ways, and uh, with, with quantitative easing and zero percent interest rates, and Congress chipped in with programs like Cash for Clunkers, Cash for caulkers, Cash for this, Cash for that. So, despite all of these great policy efforts, you know, really throwing the kitchen sink at the problem, we just you know, were not growing very fast. Um, and unemployment was still north of nine percent. In tooth, in the spring of 2011, 25 million Americans were still out of work. Uh, so I was looking for new ways, new ideas uh, uh, to provide to policymakers who seemed to be out of ideas at that point. Um, and started to do my homework and came across all of the things we've been talking about. Most notably, that that rates of entrepreneurship had fallen uh, to three and a half or four decade lows. Um, and I asked the researchers who had done the work, um, why, you know, as you said, why in the world is this happening?, uh, the sixty four thousand dollars question? Uh, and they said, we don't know. Uh, well, we have certain suspicions, certain theories, but fundamentally, we don't understand it. Um, and I thought to myself, aha, if if I and my colleagues can provide any insight as to why that's happening, we can really do something you know, potentially very important from the standpoint of policy alternatives for what to do about it. The question was, how to get at it. If these smart researchers uh, didn't understand why the decline was happening, how would we get at it? And we, as you say, we, uh, we decided to uh, uh, do the very simple, straightforward uh, way to get at the problem, and that is to get out of Washington, D.C., travel the country, and go ask entrepreneurs uh, what in the world is going on, what's in your way. Uh, so we we set up roundtables around the country in 12 states, and we hit the road um, and and what we learned was so consequential, so important, so different than what I knew policymakers were thinking of and aware of in Washington um, that uh, uh, I decided to write a book about it. Um, and that book, uh, called "Where the Jobs Are," was released in 2014. And then while I was writing that book, I realized in order to really you know follow through on all these insights that. America's entrepreneurs had given us in terms of how to turn this decline around, how to get back to, you know, three and a half percent growth, how to get back to the job creation America needed. Uh, We needed an organization in Washington, D.C. to really, you know, engage and educate policymakers and work with them on, on this policy agenda that entrepreneurs had given us. And that's why we started the Center for American Entrepreneurship.
0: So what kind of things did these entrepreneurs tell you?
1: Well, it was very interesting because uh, we expected to hear different things at different roundtables because it's a it's a very big country, it's a very diverse economy. The startup scene in uh, Orlando, Florida, is very different than the startup scene in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or New York City, or Columbus, Ohio, or Seattle, Washington. All these places that we went, and yet we we started hearing the same. You know, that there were certain differences in regional emphasis caroline is i think is the way that i would put it but we but we realized that that we were hearing the same half or, uh, dozen or so major themes everywhere we went and in no particular order they were uh... issues uh... like we have the jobs we need to fill the jobs in order to grow and survive we cannot find enough people uh, with the skills that we need and this is really an indictment of the american education system and the kind of skills or lack of skills that that uh... uh, uh graduates are are arriving at the doorsteps of employers without it's a criticism of our immigration policies you know we don't have enough domestic people uh, with the skills that we need we can't augment that that gap with um, foreign-born talent uh, because of our immigration policies. Access to capital issues. Access to capital is always a, a difficult challenge for entrepreneurs, and what we heard is that in the wake of the financial crisis, it's, it's, it's much worse. Uh, uh, regulatory and tax uh, burden, uncertainty, and complexity. And the reason why these are important is that if you think about it, when you're an entrepreneur, you're starting out, it's just you and probably a co-founder, maybe one other person. You don't have the resources for a chief compliance officer, or a chief regulatory officer, or a chief financial officer to, to handle your taxes. You, as the entrepreneur, are doing all of that. And to the extent that that regulatory complexity and burden, tax complexity and burden, are are distracting you, are taking your eye off the ball. The ball being your product or service of the marketplace um it increases the chances that you'll miss opportunities that you'll make mistakes and ultimately fail and then finally we heard everywhere we went uh that washington uh is not a source of solutions it's a source of problems it's the unwillingness to deal with uh, uh issues the national debt uh, uh uh taxes the constant bickering the the fiscal cliff the government shutdowns all of these things um Uh, uh, create uncertainty that was described to us as a wet blanket on the economy um, and uh, and and complicating entrepreneurs' ability to launch and grow their firms. There were some other issues that we heard at individual roundtables. Student debt, for example, major obstacle to entrepreneurs and people who want to work for startups. Healthcare, uh, the fact that that most people re, uh, rely on their firms, their 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 corporations or their employers for healthcare, makes it very difficult to leave that security and go and start a business. Childcare, very big obstacle for women who want to be entrepreneurs. Um, So lots of issues. All of these are incorporated into our policy agenda, and we're trying to move the needle with policymakers.
0: So one of the things that you said in your address to the House of Representatives that I really liked was, quote, from the standpoint of innovation, economic growth and job creation, arguably the three most important metrics of economic health and vitality, thriving entrepreneurship is the beating heart, the very soul of any economy. I love that quote because I think in a way it brings out the fact that the economy is not just about cold numbers and cutthroat CEOs, but it's about real people providing real solutions to problems, you know, solutions that serve both parties involved, the business and the individual. And I mean, vocationally speaking, a decline in entrepreneurship not only stunts economic growth, but hand in hand with that, it also stunts human creativity, and that results in fewer people being able to employ their unique skills.
1: That's right. I mean, the word that's used, and I I like this word a lot as well, the the word that is used often uh, to describe the decline in entrepreneurship is a decline in economic dynamism. Um, and that is, you know, obviously, you, you want an economy that is is growing and developing and providing opportunity and jobs and hopefully rising w- w- uh, w- 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 uh, wages for uh, for workers. And 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 to get all those things, you need, you know, you know, if you think of the economy like an athlete, um, that athlete, that that economy has to be dynamic. It has to be strong. It has to be healthy. It has to be striking out in new directions. It has to be plowing new ground. And and you're, you know, the the uh, that analogy I used about the soul of the American economy. And that's what I, uh, the subtitle of my book was entrepreneurship and the soul of the American economy. That soul is, as you say, real people who are deciding to take great risks, you know, being an entrepreneur is risky. You're leaving probably a very stable job, a very stable set of circumstances. You're striking out on your own. You've got an idea that you think is a winner. Um, you sacrifice, you work hard, you know, at great personal and financial risk to yourself. um, over half of startups fail within five years, uh, but some of those uh, those new ventures or businesses that people launch turn into the next Google, the next, you know, the next Tesla, the next Amazon. And those new businesses, those new ventures that survive and then start to grow, um, are really are really the engine of job creation, economic growth, and and, um, and opportunity in the economy. We rely on those. But that's that's the American spirit. It's American ingenuity. It's everything that we like to think of we are as a nation and an economy. And so it's a terribly serious problem that, that that this activity is actually in decline.
0: Do you think that this is going to get worse before it gets better?
1: I, I certainly hope not. I, I and, and I am very optimistic. I mean, first of all, um, even though uh, the numbers remain um, at or near four-decade lows, there does seem to be a slight, in, in the recent data, there does seem to be a leveling off and even a slight uptick in the number of of new businesses created. We are still missing about 100,000 new businesses uh, each year. Historically, the uh, the U.S. economy has created about 510,000 new businesses each year. Uh, Since 2009, we've been averaging about 400,000. So that's 100,000 annually. And over the course of 10 years, that means that we're missing about a million startups in this country since 2009. Um, But there has been a leveling off and a slight uptick. And more importantly, Caroline, um, I can report uh, to your listeners that as, as we have introduced ourselves, CAE, uh, to policymakers around Washington, and we've had, you know, I'd say about 100, 150 uh, meetings with individual policymakers. I've testified in front of uh, uh, congressional uh, committees, as you pointed out. Um, we've, we've shared our research, shared our policy agenda with Um, uh, folks in the Senate in the House. As a matter of fact, we've we've established uh, a new entrepreneurship caucus in the Senate for the first time. We're working on standing up an entrepreneurship caucus in the House. We have a great relationship with with the administration who reached out to us after they heard that we had launched and asked to see our policy agenda and pledged to work with us. And we have a great relationship with with a caucus um, in the House called the New Democrats, um, who were sort of business-friendly centrist uh, Democrats who were particularly interested in entrepreneurship and innovation. So the point here is that there is there is a growing awareness uh, in Washington on Capitol Hill and in the administration um, of the importance of entrepreneurship, that it's in trouble, and a real interest in what to do about it. So we're very hopeful that um, in the next year or two, now that CAE is on the ground, is known and the importance of entrepreneurship is spreading in Washington, we feel like we're in a very good position to move the needle on a number of issue fronts, very important to entrepreneurship.
0: One more thing that I want to end on, it got me thinking, because you say in your address that to meaningfully address these challenges and also the anger, cynicism, and populism they inspire, we must accelerate economic growth. And I can't help but think, you know, it's also... Probably inspires a host of other ideologies socialism among them which we 're really seeing becoming prevalent in America right now
1: yes and that's and that's very unfortunate uh, for all the reasons that anybody familiar with economic history knows um, but I think I think what's breeding that you know kind of cynicism um, and populism on both sides of the political spectrum and now uh, more recently you see this interest in uh, in socialism is there is a feeling in, in the minds of many, many, many Americans that uh, at least in recent years, and, and I would argue you know, going back several decades, that uh, the economy um, you know, simply hasn't been working for enough of us uh, to where people have lost faith. Uh, with uh, democratic capitalism, and they're looking for alternatives. Um, it's my view, as you just said, that a large part of that uh, reason is that the economy simply has not been growing enough uh, or fast enough. We we haven't grown. The U.S. economy has not grown at three percent or better. And remember, the historical average is three and a half. We have not grown at three percent or better since 2005. So we're going on 14 years of subpar economic growth, and all of the associated problems with that are things like job anxiety, stagnant wages, the wealth income and opportunity gaps, uh, the highest poverty rates since the late 60s, the highest dependency rates in terms of food stamps and disability ever. Um, and this is happening you know, uh, most uh, severely among the middle class who feel left behind, who feel like the American economy is not uh, working for them and providing the opportunity that they need and deserve. Um, and, so, and so I'm very much of the view that the work that we're working on to try to turn uh, the decline in entrepreneurship around with the ultimate goal of getting back to the kind of growth that we need to make progress on all these other fronts, this work is about much, much more than just more new businesses. You know, it's not just about, oh, we you know we like new startups, they're cute and we want more of them. It's, it's about the country. It's about the economy be able, being able to provide for all Americans in the way that they need and deserve so that uh, we can preserve this national consensus and commitment to uh, democratic capitalism, that we're not going to make the mistake. Of, of resorting to something like socialism uh, because we think that capitalism is somehow, somehow broken or lost its way. So, uh, so this is very mu- much about, uh, about the country, about economic freedom, about opportunity, and all the things that we hold dear.
0: If our listeners want to learn more about the Center for American Entrepreneurship, where can they go?
1: They can go to www.startups.com usa.org there's lots of information there on all of our activities what we're about who we're working with um, and i would encourage anybody to go and read that and support us if they if 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 this story moves their mind and their heart there's there's uh we uh, we we welcome uh, folks to get involved because it's an incredibly important issue
0: John thank you so much for your time and for joining me on Act in Line today
1: Thank you Caroline
0: You're invited to an evening in Chicago featuring best-selling author PJ O'Rourke on Thursday, March 7. You do not want to miss out on this event filled with humor, wit, and engaging dialogue. With more than 1 million words of trenchant journalism under his byline, and more citations in the Penguin Dictionary of humorous quotations than any living writer, O'Rourke has established himself as America's premier political satirist. O'Rourke's best-selling books include his newest release, None of My Business, and the book will be available at the dinner for purchase and signing. Make sure to save your seat today before they're all gone, and save your spot at acton.org events.
2: When people no longer find satisfaction in their job, it's called burnout. And sometimes the solution is to quit. But there is another approach, changing perspective.
3: The entire Western culture tells us that we are working so that we can go have fun and rest.
2: That's Melissa Wallace. She, too, felt burnout trying to find meaning in her job in the corporate world.
3: And I jumped to the nonprofit sector thinking I was moving up in God's hierarchy of work, that surely if I did something um, better for the people, I would be doing something better for God.
2: While she was waiting for that aha moment, something happened in her family life. Her daughter was diagnosed with a serious illness. And as she turned to her faith, spending time reading scripture— she would see plenty of references to work. And she...
3: Had it all wrong And that actually everybody can be on the A team um, for, you know, God's hierarchy of teams. Everybody's on the varsity. There is no junior varsity um, of different types of work in terms of serving
2: God. In other words, we shouldn't expect work to give us this warm, fuzzy feeling. Rather, we should celebrate it as an end in itself, something God modeled for us to do. He took
3: chaos and brought structure called it good and really any kind of work we do from unloading a dishwasher to being the ceo of a company to trying to take out an appendix those are all taking chaos and bringing structure and trying to call it good
2: maybe workers ask too much of their jobs like expecting employment to fulfill some kind of passion that is bound to lead to disappointment because job fulfillment is never linear. Wallace formed an organization where she's based in Tennessee called the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work.
3: To help individuals and organizations think through their faith and their day-to-day work in a way that um, incorporates the gospel as part of their understanding of work and leads to greater flourishing for all in Nashville.
2: Which brings us to this man.
4: This is where I live.
2: He's not from Nashville, but instead of giving up on his profession, he decided to have two of them.
4: My name is Craig Varecki. I am an engineer by trade and a pastor by calling. And my mission in life, at least at this stage, is to help especially men who are struggling with homelessness and addiction um, and get them on a path to recovery.
2: If work is taking chaos, giving it structure, and calling it good, Craig Varecki is doubling down. Engineers, for example, solve design problems.
4: A lot of times that will start off working with a designer, literally drawing things on a napkin, and you know, in a conversation like this this is my idea and what I want it to look like. The engineer takes that sketch and turns it into 3D models and then drawings, which we can then begin to manufactured those parts from.
2: Pastors can bring structure to spiritual chaos.
4: So yeah, sleeping under a bridge is, you know, based on their decision to use their drug.
2: When Varecki is not in his engineering job, he's often leading a 12-step program to help men, many of them homeless, get on the path to recovery. He walks the streets in his urban neighborhood. And because he's trained as a pastor to do this, he will strike up a conversation with someone who appears to be struggling.
4: Most of the time what they want is money. And I usually make that statement right up front when I talk to him. I I don't have, and I usually don't even carry money on me um, if I'm just out about walking like that. But I do love to hear their stories. And if they're willing to sit down with me you know, over coffee, Um, over breakfast and give me an opportunity to get to know them, hear their story. Um, Because most of those people, you know, rejection after rejection after rejection whether it's when they're panhandling asking for money and people just driving by or pushing them off to the side, I don't want to talk to you. Um, These people have been rejected most of their lives and don't have any friends and are living in total isolation. Um, What they really need is to know that somebody cares. Right.
2: Varecki admits he went to seminary school because of the burnout he felt years ago as an engineer when he worked a stressful job in the auto industry. When he went to seminary school, he became convinced mm-hmm. that engineering was the wrong profession for him. Yeah. You didn't think you could reconcile that, that you could maybe find God's purpose through engineering or serve him through engineering?
4: Yeah, and I think I've tried that you know, in a lot of ways over the years and the different engineering jobs I've had, and it's never been um, totally fulfilling. There have been opportunities where I've gotten to share my faith, but not not in the sense that I feel called to as a pastor. Um, and I still have that today, and that struggle goes on all the time because I have an employer's. Pl- paying me to work 40 hours a week and wants me to, yeah. you know, be very efficient and get things done. Yeah.
2: But here's the part Varecki doesn't readily acknowledge. He's still an engineer. His engineering skills help him as a pastor, and his ministry work helps him in the office. He thinks it's a role that is much in demand in today's workplace setting.
4: In many of my jobs, I've witnessed situations with employees where there's been conflict or they've had to do discipline with an employee for various reasons, and those are always just hard, awkward situations for both the employee and the employer. Right. I've seen situations where they've had to call the police to come in just to be present there when somebody is told they're going to be released because they don't know what that person's going to do, you know. Yeah. Having a chaplain there um, who could maybe bring a softer side um, to those kind of situations. Um, Somebody who the employees already know because this person either visits there frequently or works alongside them every day and they have a relationship with.
2: You definitely bring that part of your life into the workplace. Now, do you see it working the other way around when you are ministering to people? Do you ever feel like your engineering brain gets into that equation?
4: And right away, my problem-solver brain wants to interject and say, well, just stop and do this. Help them fix their situation. And what I've learned through 12-step groups is that um, listening is a whole lot more important than speaking advice to people.
2: So there you have it. People make peace through their work. Jobs can feel futile at times, but there is some perfect order that keeps us going. You don't have to start a nonprofit, you don't have to become a pastor. Making peace with your vocation comes from within. For Act in Line, this is Anne-Marie
0: Sheeper. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We're always trying to make a great show for you. And one of the ways in which we can do that is to use feedback from you. We would love to hear from you, whether you'd like to suggest a specific guest or topic, let us know what you like or dislike in our shows, or just generally let us know why you like listening. You can shoot us an email at actin.org. In addition to that, we're trying to create a new occasional segment for the show. If you have any questions related to a subject we've covered on this podcast before, or questions related to economics, faith, Business, or maybe a current issue you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, leave us a message at 888 705 4180. If your question is picked, you'll get to hear it on the show, and members of our team here at the Acton Institute will break it down on the podcast. Last but definitely not least, if you like Acton Line, please subscribe today and don't forget to share it with your friends or family members who might also enjoy listening to this podcast. We're available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.